0: 14. We're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. A little context before I read. Uh, If you happen to have a red-letter Bible... Uh, you'd notice that in the chapters preceding, we're hearing a lot of Jesus's teaching. We're at a point in Luke where Luke is focusing on what Jesus says. In the beginning of Luke, the focus is on what Jesus did and how people responded to that. Now we're hearing about what Jesus has to say. And in this section, I think we'd be surprised if we just sat down. I did it this week. Uh, I just took a red letter Bible and I just read all that Jesus says in Luke. And I think we'd be surprised, for one, because Jesus doesn't mince words. I mean, he he does not mess around. Jesus is straightforward. When he says, don't make assumptions about the fact that you think you belong to the kingdom. Because you're not in a place where you can make that assumption. He's not afraid to say that. He actually says it often, and most of the preceding section here have been warnings. And this chapter, this section, is no different. It's a weighty, heavy statement about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. cannot be my disciple for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, this is a heavy word that you have us considering this morning. And I pray that my words would reflect your word. That what you intended to say when you spoke to those crowds, is be, it would be what I would say uh, to our family, to our church. That we together would listen to the description of what it means to call ourselves your disciple, your follower. And that in love and worship and honor to you, we would faithfully follow you as disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what this text asks from us is increasingly uncommon, I think. Uh, In a world of cell phones and constant connectivity, there is in us the constant need to be engaged. Our schedules are, are fuller, our inboxes are fuller, and our attention is pulled every which way. And when we do have an opportunity to sit down, there are hundreds of ways to entertain ourselves at our fingertips, right? Like this, or like this, or like this. The passage opens and closes with Jesus talking about the absolute necessity of complete devotion. But couched in the middle, right in the middle, there's two parables. And what these parables ask us to do is to sit down. To stop doing and reflect, to be deliberate with our life, to be deliberate with our choices, to be deliberate with our values, and ask the question, is this really what I want to get myself into? If you're going to build a tower, Jesus says, it's wise to first sit down and determine the cost and evaluate what it will involve the materials, the manpower. Or, if you're a king going out to war, first sit down. Look across the valley at the army you're about to go to war with and ask yourself, can our 10,000 with our resources defeat their 20,000 with their resources? So while this text is about the cost of discipleship, it's first about the necessity to stop and think about the cost of discipleship. Something that we're not very good at anymore. I think if we stop and hear the words, you know, whoever does not hate his family, whoever does not hate his own life, whoever does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple we have to pause and we have to listen. Because I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and ask, what in the world was I doing? I set out to build a tower and this, this is what I have? A heap of rubble? What, what is this? I don't want to, to find myself at the end of a battle and realize I walked down into the valley to engage in battle. And I left my sword and my shield and my belt and my armor up on the hill because I completely forgot about what I was doing. You know, I think we could extend the metaphor. My guess is that most of us in this room would call ourselves disciples. There are probably not many of us who are saying, I'm thinking about joining Jesus on the road to discipleship which is the audience here, right? But I think we could extend the metaphor, we could extend the parable and say, if it's necessary to stop at the beginning of the journey, you better not lose sight in the middle of the journey, what you're doing and where you're going. Uh, It it happens often uh, when Katie and I leave church, Uh, I'll turn to her, we've piled the kids into the van, I'll say, okay, what's the plan uh, for lunch? Uh, are we eating at home? Do you want to go out to eat? Do you want to go to Costco? We're we going to go to Chipotle. Um, go to Mi Ranchio. What, what are we going to do for lunch today? And as I'm asking that question, I'll stick the the van in the drive and i will start driving. i pull out, and Katie invariably will say, well, "Can we stop? <laughs> like we, we we didn't decide where we're going, but you're you're driving. Like, and in my mind, well, I'm trying to be efficient. If we If we start heading in a direction and happen to decide that we're going to go to that place and we're already moving that direction, we've just saved the two minutes that we would have been sitting there in the van in the parking lot deciding where we're going to go. Thank you. (laughs) But I think she's on to something. Because more often than not, we end up that direction And then I say, you know what? Actually, let's go to Chipotle. And we turn around and we backtrack. The text wants us to stop. To sit down. Notice that that phrase is actually in both of them. If you're going to build a tower, don't you first sit down and think about it? If you're a king going into war, don't you first sit down? How often in your life as couples... Um, do you sit down and say, what what is our life about? What is our, our mission as a family? What do we value as a family? What are we trying to sow into our kids' lives? Or are we just driving and saying, at some point along the journey while we're driving, we'll figure it out, but I'm going to take this left turn and I'm going to take this right turn and we're going to go straight. But I don't even really know where I'm going. So let's sit down and think about where it is Jesus would have us go. So let's heed Katie's advice and stop. Uh, When we came into church this morning, you might have noticed that on the board was our church mission statement. And it says, we are a what? Can anybody fill in the blank? A community. Good. There's one word. We are a community of disciples. So what Jesus is describing here is what we say we are. We are a community of disciples. We are a community of people who've heard Luke 14, 25 through 35 and said, that's who we are. That's what we want. That's where we're going. So let's ask ourselves, ask ourselves, does this describe Us, does this describe me? The title for the sermon series through Luke is Kingdom Come. And here's my nutshell definition of what that means, because I think it's going to be helpful as we talk about Jesus's definition of discipleship. So God has his kingdom up here, right? And he has his way of doing things, his desires, his loves, his values. We have our kingdom down here, our way of doing things. Our loves, our desires, our values, our definitions of rights and wrongs. And oftentimes there's a tension between those two. When Jesus comes and says, my kingdom's here, what he's saying is the way of life up here is going to start to be the way of life down here. I've come to gather a people, a group of people, a family of people, disciples who want to learn what this kingdom is like and want to turn their backs on this kingdom. So that's when we say kingdom come, when you pray in the Lord's prayer, my father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. We're not just praying that at some point in the future, Jesus bring the heavenly kingdom and make it here. That is going to happen. We are praying that. But we are also praying right now in my life, in my minutia, in my days, in my weeks, in my months, these things up here that characterize your kingdom, make them true down here. Make them true in my life. Make them true in my family. Make them true in our community. Texts like this. um, I use this word. They haunt me. Um, 16 years ago, I was 20 years old and I went to Australia with a group called uh, YWAM. And uh, it completely and radically transformed my life. And there was really one, one thing that happened there. I grew up in the church. I grew up saying, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus. But I got there to Australia, and I realized these people, people have a completely different idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus than I do. And there was a mantra that matched their lives. And the mantra was ruined for the ordinary. That when Christ calls someone to now become his disciple and follow them, your life is now ruined for the ordinary. And I hear that weight and that gravity in passages like this that say, hate your family, hate your life, pick up your cross, put nails through your hands and feet. That's what it means to be my disciple. So this text is a warning. But just as much as I think this text is a warning about not settling for the status quo, the ordinary, I think it's an invitation. And here's why I say that cost is often a reflection of worth. And if it's not, then the product is a fraud. So when Jesus says the cost is great, he is at the same time saying the value is enormous. I think with a passage like this, there's a couple mistakes we can make, a couple potential errors that keep the passage at arm's length. Because when I hear things like this, my human reaction is to kind of want to build this force field around me so it doesn't get in here. And it doesn't really touch my life. I hear it, but it doesn't touch me. It doesn't impact me. I think there's a couple ways we can do that. And so before we ask the question, what does he mean when he says, hate your family? Because we have to ask that question, right? Uh, I want to first warn us about ways that we can keep this at arm's length. At the beginning of the passage, if you look at verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. So Jesus is traveling through the countryside. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling from city to city, crowds begin to follow him. They're attracted to his message. They're attracted maybe to his lifestyle. They're attracted to the miraculous things that he's doing. They like him. They're interested in him. He intrigues them. Things he says and does resonate with them. And I think we sell the crowds short, and we miss a crucial point in this text, if we think the crowds are only following Jesus because he's some kind of carnival act. Hey, did you hear about that weirdo out in the woods who's saying the kingdom's coming, and he's saying he's healing people? Let's go check that guy out. What do you got going on this evening? Nothing. All right, let's let's go see this dude because he is whacked out. He is crazy. And I think we sell the crowds 100 percent short if we do that, because when we do that, you know what we do, right? We say who Jesus is talking to are those people. He's not talking to me. No, Jesus isn't talking to me. He's talking to those kind of people. But I want you to think about what it would mean in the Greco-Roman world to stop and follow someone around for a week. You, you, were, you were a probably a sustenance farmer, or maybe you were a shepherd. As such, your daily sustenance depended on every single day of work. You didn't have a day off. That's actually why the Sabbath is such a huge deal in the Old Testament, is because for God to say, you need to pause one day and not work, they're going, whoa, how can I survive if I do that? You don't take a day off. They don't have Costco. They don't have a deep freeze with a quarter cow in it waiting. Uh, They don't have a refrigerator. If you want to live, you work. And you work every day when the sun comes up until the sun goes down. You don't go follow around a guy out on the countryside for a week and then think that you're going to come home and things are going to be like they were when you left. And so for someone to leave that and start following Jesus around, they're saying in that action, there's something about this guy that I want. There's something here that I have never seen before. And it's just not entertainment. This might completely change my life. Because I'm willing to take the risk of following him around. There was a cost involved. And so when Jesus turns and he looks at the crowd, he's not standing up on his tippy toes looking at the Pharisees kind of spying in on what he's doing. He's not looking up at, on his tippy toes looking at kind of the rabble in the background, right? The people snickering. He turns around and he looks at the first row. And he says, Do you have any idea? what you're doing you want to follow me but do you know what that means so he's talking to us he's talking to those who have left their life to come listen to jesus so we can't hold this text out at arm's length and say he's just talking to the people who come to church once or twice a year he's just talking to the people who are off getting drunk on the weekends and off partying but call themselves christians no, he's talking to us. He's talking to the crowds following him around. And in our day and age, that's the church when we gather. We're the crowd following Jesus around saying, you've got something to say and I think there's something there. I think the second way that we can keep this passage at arm's length uh, is to immediately look at that word hate and say, well, what Jesus really means is that we just need to make him first. Everything else second, Jesus first. Which actually might be what he's saying. But we can't say that too quickly. Because here, here's my problem with simply saying, well, he just means Jesus is second. You know, you've got all these priorities in your life, one through 75, Jesus is first, family second, job third, uh, reputation fourth, uh, such and such and such. It goes on. That's not how hyperbole works, right? You know what hyperbole is, right? It's an exaggerated statement, not to be taken literally, but to have a, an exaggerated heightened effect. So he's using hyperbole, yes. I don't think he's saying, hate your family. You know, if he said, hate your family, he would be contradicting a million other passages of Scripture, You see what I did there, hyperbole, right? Not really a million other passages, but you guys knew what I meant. There are a lot of scriptures that say, honor your mother and father. Love your spouse. So he's not saying that. So what then is he saying? While hyperbole is not to be taken literally, it does have a literary function. It emphasizes, it heightens, it doesn't equate You don't say it's raining cats and dogs because it's raining. You say it's raining cats and dogs when the raindrops on your roof sound like at any point a 40-pound animal is about to fly through the ceiling and land on your living room floor. That's when you say it's raining cats and dogs. So he wouldn't say hate your family if it simply meant make everything else second place, but make Jesus first place. It's not just poor command of language to use hyperbole when it's unwarranted. It's actually misleading and a bit annoying. You know, like the guy who describes his fish as the size of a watermelon. If Jesus equates hating with second place, he's not a trustworthy communicator. Unless, unless what we mean by second place is less like getting second place at the Olympics, you know, first place, second place, third place, right? Unless it's less like that and more like looking at a group of marbles. I have some marbles here. Get them out of my pocket. So these are marbles, right? Uh... Isaac went to moon marble this year with his class, loved it, came home. We were playing marbles for the next couple weeks, and I think they kind of forgot about it. But it was kind of fun. You know how marbles works, right? You you have some kind of boundary, and you put all the little marbles out, and then you have your shooter marble. And the shooter marble you use to try and knock the other little marbles out of the circle. Well, the shooter marble is always a tad bit larger than the other marble. So here we have our regular marble, right? And then we have our shooter marble. That's a little bit like the Olympics, first and second, right? Your marble and your shooter marble. The only way that Jesus means second place here, and we're being true to his use of the word hate and hyperbole, is if Jesus's shooter marble isn't this. Jesus's shooter marble is this. Jesus, first place, second place. Not, first place, second place. So those are two ways that we can hold it out at arm's length. But I think there's another way that we can hold this passage at arm's length, and it's actually by what I'm going to say is shooting high. What I mean by that is, I think it's easy to hear this passage and think, what Jesus is asking you is, are you willing to die for him? Which he is here, right? He is asking, are you willing? In, in his context, Luke's original audience, they had to be willing to die. That That was a possibility. It's not really for us as much. But here's what happens. If I simply preach this message and I told you a whole bunch of inspiring missionary stories and martyr stories and how in the first century this guy did this, that would be inspiring. But you know what that would do? It wouldn't come in here. The reason it wouldn't come in here is you say, well, yeah, I'll deal with this passage. When someone comes in the back door and is holding a gun to my head and saying, do you believe in Jesus? But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. Jesus doesn't mean to be willing to bear your cross. simply means in that one-off occasion, let's use a hypothetical situation, if this happens, would you be willing? And then we walk out here just thinking, would I be willing to do that? I don't know. I think what Jesus is asking of us is far more intense than that. He's saying every single day, Are you hating your family? Are you hating your own life? Are you picking up your cross and following me? If we were to say that what Jesus means by hate is that we've all just got to run off and be missionaries, I think we miss a point. And for some of us, that might be what it is. I don't want to sell that short at all. But here's, here's what I want to say. The real... Goal of the kingdom is not complete otherness, but in unordinary ordinariness. An, ordin- an unordinary way of going about the ordinary things in our life. It's a way of making this kingdom up here infect everything down here. I look at my family completely different. Because of this kingdom. I look at my job completely different because of this kingdom. I look at my paycheck completely different because of this kingdom. So let's look then and ask, what does it mean to hate our family? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life he cannot be my disciple in the greco-roman world your family unit was not simply a matter of affection but of devotion your family more than just those people you love more than the other people it was the people you were loyal to it was the People you dared not betray. If your father said, this is our trade and this is going to be your trade, you said, okay. If your father said, we live here, so you're going to live here, you said, okay. Your family, in addition to being your sense of loyalty, was your sense of security. You didn't have a Roth IRA because your family was your retirement fund. Just as you cared for your parents, your children would care for you. If your family gets attacked by another clan, your extended family comes to your defense. Your family here is not just, hey, you love mom and dad, right? You have this feeling for them. When he says hate, he's not saying hate in the sense of, you know, you should despise them. I think what he's doing, he's using a metaphor. And he's taking the family unit, which in that world was your loyalty. It was the driving mechanism in your life. You did what you did because your family did what they did. And you dared not betray them. And so when he says, hate your family, I think what he's saying, betray all other loyalties. Turn your back on every other form of security that you're trusting in. Maybe for some of you, that is your family. Your sense of self worth as a parent is the behavior of your children. That's your security blanket. That's how you go to bed at night feeling good about yourself. Or maybe it's your career, or maybe it's your reputation. And then he goes on and tacks on to that and even his own life. You must despise yourself. You must have this weird narcissistic, not narcissistic, opposite of narcissistic. I'm blanking. Hatred of yourself. No, that's not what he's saying. If family represents those things outside of us that make demands upon us and shelter us, then our own life is those things within us that do the same. Your inward impulses and urges that demand your obedience. I want this. Keep me from that. Your life is your necessities, your comforts, your desires, your ambitions, dreams, fears, and your loves. And these, then, are what Christ says, bring all these to me. With an open hand. All of those I want, I need, I must have, he says, make those a marble. They aren't untouchable, and they aren't the main thing for Christ's disciples. When we make Christ the center and ultimate value in our life, we begin to ask different kinds of questions. Rather than asking, how might this affect me if I do it, I ask, How could I love my neighbor in this situation? Or when I get a bonus at work, rather than asking, how do I want to use this? I ask, Lord, how could I best honor you and represent your kingdom with this? I think the shift in mind of the true disciple is radical. Your ambition, your loyalty is no longer to you. It's no longer to ourselves. It's to him and his kingdom. We're driven by these values, not these values. So let's get particular. What, what are your values? What's shaping who you are? What shapes what you're going to do this afternoon? What shapes what you're going to do this next week? The decisions you make as families, the decisions you make as individuals. What's, what are the driving loyalties that shape those decisions, your attitudes, and how you respond to a situation? What are your securities? What is the sun, that enormous, hot, compelling center that all the other planets in your life revolve around, and are held in their proper place by. Entertainment, possessions, reputation, respect, physical pleasure, comfort, fear of failure, fear of exposure, experiences, travel, ease, security, control, power, the need to feel wanted, We're pretty creative. We can think of lots of them, right? What makes you tick? What do you get really passionate about? What do you get really upset about? What do you tend to worry about? Where or in what do you look for comfort? What would make you feel rich? What do you love to talk about? To what does your mind instinctively drift? This is a really convicting one. What do you pray for? How do you cope with disappointment? What would make you happy? Those are all indicators of where our loyalties lie. Every year on Father's Day, uh, Katie does this thing where she videotapes the kids individually and asks them questions about me. And it's kind of her gift to me on Father's Day is I get to, to see the kids answer questions about dad. Some of them, you know, what, what's dad's favorite food? Uh, what does dad like to do? Um, what do you like to play with dad? These types of things. And invariably, the question comes... What does dad love? And some of you are going to say I'm being hard on myself, but I don't think so. When they answer, the royals, or coffee, or for you, fill in the blank, movies, camping, traveling. If they look at my life, And the answer to the question, what does daddy love, are those things? I think I've blown it. I think I've completely blown it. In the kingdom, there is one priority. And to all these other jockeying loyalties, trying to position themselves in our lives, Jesus says, hate them if you want to be my disciple, what characterizes people who follow me is they have me and then everything else is over here. So what then does it mean to hate our own preferences and ambitions? It means we believe that Christ is more wonderful and beautiful and satisfying. He's telling us to do something here that sounds negative, right? But simply saying, and uh, Skip actually said this uh, this morning during worship, simply saying no, simply passing up on things isn't what Jesus is after here. He's saying, I want your preference for me to so far outweigh your preference for any other thing that they become like marbles to that bowling ball in your life. Imagine playing that game of marbles. You have a boundary about this big with 15 marbles in it. You know, when Isaac and I play, it's harder than it looks. You'll sit there for 45 minutes trying to flick all those marbles out of that circle. But if I took that bowling ball and I dropped it down, it's not going to take long. And then in verse 27, he continues on. It's not enough to hate our families and our lives. We must be willing to bear our own cross and come after him, follow behind him. In the Roman Empire, the cross was reserved specifically for political criminals. If you were a murderer or a thief, you weren't crucified. If you committed treason then you are crucified. If you don't submit to Rome's authority, if you don't bow the knee to Caesar, then you're crucified. So what's the cross? The cross are all the penalties and repercussions and consequences that we pay when we look at all these loyalties in our life and say, I'm not serving you anymore. And those crosses can vary in degree. They can vary in substance and in style. Maybe your loyalty is your reputation. And someone at work has been talking about you. And you know they've been talking about you because actually you walked up behind them at the water cooler and they didn't realize you were there. And they were saying... Can you believe Daryl? I guess that means it's Michael if it's Daryl, but. <laughs> in your heart, because your reputation is what you find peace and hope and security in, and you get hard, and you tense up, you say, oh, I, I hate him. What Christ has asks us to do here is say don't be loyal to your reputation your reputation doesn't matter anymore in the kingdom stop serving this sense this need that i need to feel good about myself so rather than harboring bitterness if you were to turn your back on that loyalty you'd say i'm not going to i'm not going to to strive to make things right I'm going to love. And that sounds pretty, right? But every single one of us know that's really, really hard. It's really hard in all of our relationships. It's really hard in our marriages. It's hard with our kids. It doesn't feel easy when we're loving the way that Christ asks us to love because we have other loyalties that are saying, hey, you should be serving me over here right now. And so when we stop serving them, there are penalties. When we don't pinch the incense to Caesar, you get put up on the cross. When you don't pinch the incense to bitterness or entertainment uh, or your fear of man, there's going to be a cost. And unless we're willing to bear that cost, Jesus says we cannot be his disciples there's this crazy pattern in the bible Uh, we see it in acts and we see it all over paul's letters true disciples long to become like christ even in his death when you remember in acts it's around chapter three or four i think the first time the disciples got put in prison and were whipped? And do you remember what they went and did? They went and they rejoiced. I mean, how weird is that? It is weird. It's not how we think. We get put in prison and we get whipped and we say, Hey, pray for me, I'm getting whipped. Please, Tell them to stop. It hurts. And they go away happy. They're they're singing songs, skipping down their street to their house. We got whipped for Jesus. We got whipped for. That's so not normal. But it's what disciples do because more than anything else in life, more than their back, more than the nerve endings on their back that are torn to shreds by a cat of nine tails, what they want is to become like their Savior. And that desire, that ambition is the controlling desire and the controlling ambition in everything they do. So what do we do with this? Verse 33 serves as both a summary, I think, and a call to action. So therefore, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The word renounce here is a really interesting word in the Greek. It actually means bid farewell to. So if you're leaving for for a long journey, you're going to bid farewell to your family. You're going to bid farewell to your friends. You're going to say goodbye. I love that imagery. I think what this passage would have us do this morning is to say goodbye. Goodbye to bid farewell to those things and desires that occupy our hearts, our loyalties that we bow down to and that we serve and that we pinch incense to. He says, say goodbye to them. I think there are many of us, myself included, that have loyalties sitting in the passenger seat or maybe on our laps in the driver's seat when they ought to be in the rear view mirror and our hands should be out the window saying bye. And we're going to, I didn't think about this until this morning when Seth was talking about baptism. That's what baptism is. So did you know that the symbolism of baptism, when you put someone down into water, you're saying this is symbolizing like going to the grave. You're going down and you're dying and you're coming up out of the grave now as a completely new person. You're saying goodbye to your old loves, your old desires, your old ambitions, your old dreams, your old hopes, your old securities. And you're rising again to brand new ones. And that's what we're going to celebrate when we celebrate baptism. And it's what Jesus calls us to hear. So this passage leaves us with a picture of a true disciple. Christ is his or her single-minded passion. So let's end where we started. Stop. Sit down and think about that. Maybe you stop and sit down and think about that this week. Maybe that's the best way for you to apply what we've said today is, don't just leave this morning and think, well, I heard that message and now I'm going to go on and forget about it. Uh, don't even remember anything I said. Just remember Luke fourteen twenty-five through 35 and pick it up with your spouse or with a friend and sit down and say, let's talk about where we're going. Let's talk about what we're building. Let's talk about what we value because we want to be true disciples. There's a place in our lives for our desires and hopes and ambitions. But Jesus wants them to be marble size and held in orbit around him. If I throw this marble off that bowling ball, that bowling ball's not going anywhere. But who knows where this is going and will end up. but I don't want to leave the impression in closing that displacing marbles is the goal. The goal is loving the bowling ball and seeing the bowling ball for what it really is. The goal is coming to realize that being wholly devoted to Christ Is the very best investment you could ever make. The chapter concludes with a final warning about salt, and here's his point. This is how we'll conclude. I'm going to borrow something Ferris actually said a couple weeks ago, Uh, the missionary pastor from Pakistan who was with us. He said, We don't advertise, people don't know about us because we have advertisements or we have signs. The believers' lives are the advertisement. If we are committed to the same exact things as everybody else, we become insipid, without flavor. You can't even tell there's salt there. And we, in effect, concede that this kingdom is better in this kingdom and Jesus wants followers who know and have experienced and have delighted in and who courageously say with their whole life he is better let's pray Father, you know that my heart is so prone to wander, but I ask for us this morning that you would be our chief love, our chief loyalty, our chief delight, our chief desire, our chief ambition. Father, I pray that for us this morning that we would take that bowling ball that is you and smash it down in our little game of marbles, And that our life would be dominated by your presence. Not out of a sense of duty, Father. But out of a sense of longing for that life that you have promised to those who truly know you. There's a joy to be had. There's a confidence to be had. There's a security to be had. There's peace to be had. And we're not going to find it in marbles. We're going to find it in you. And so I ask this morning that you would absolutely invade our lives and become our one priority. Not one of many, but the priority. And I pray that if there's anybody in this room who does not know you and has been thinking about for some time about wanting to follow you. I pray for the courage for them. This morning or this week or next week to consider what it means to your to be your disciple and that your spirit would so invade their heart that they would say yes. I want that I want to leave all this and I want that may that be the salt that we sprinkle in our world that you without a doubt are better and more valuable than any other thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.